What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. With another hot inflation reading, one thing that's certain is the debate over inflation is not proving transitory. The Hawks point to the surging cost of food, freight, and restaurants last month. The Doves say that outside those categories, prices are pretty muted. We will dig into this debate. Plus, a new tax proposal is making its way through Washington, and it aims to tax stock buybacks. Will it pass, and would that cripple a key leg of the market's long rally? We've got the details. And the stock that's jumped 25% this week, a solid earnings beat giving it another boost today. We'll speak with the CEO of our mystery stock ahead. I guarantee you are not going to guess this one, unless we give you too many hints throughout the hour. But first, to Dom Chu, he's got the market. I'm not even going to try to guess right now, but I look forward to this segment, Kelly. First of all, if you want to say it's about flat in the market, you'd be hard-pressed to find any levels that could be flatter across the board than what we're seeing right now for the S&P 500. It is now up three points, seven basis points worth of gain. The Dow Industrial is up four basis points, or 12 full points, and the Nasdaq Composite green by just about one-tenth of one percent, 13 points as well. But we might take it if the green sticks. It'll snap multi-day losing streaks for the major indices, especially for the Dow in the S&P 500. One thing to keep an eye on so far over the course of the past one-week period, it has been consumer discretionary, the only S&P 500 sector that's in green for the week-to-date period, and that's due in part to strength from Tesla and some other stocks like Starbucks. That's the reason why it's outperforming. Communication services, the second best performing sector, down one half of 1%. And real estate really taking it on the chin, down about 3.5%. Some real concerns there about one of the best performing sectors so far. Is there a mini rotation kind of moving out of some of those names? Interest rates play into that story as well. And the single worst performing stock in the S&P 500 has been one of the stars so far this year. That's Kroger, the grocery store giant. Now down about 7% right now off the session lows, but on a year-to-date basis, you can see they're up 35%. However, that drop that you're seeing is now down 10% from its recent highs. Kroger comes out with better-than-expected profits, better-than-expected revenues, and same-store sales declines that weren't as bad as expected. However, with the stock that's run this much, Kelly, even an updated forecast, upped forecast for the full year. Can't seem to get the bulls back in this, for at least for the time being. Profit taking the day, the name of the game here so far with Kroger. Still, though, it's a name we should watch. Back over to you, Kel. Dom, don't you, though, think this is a really interesting case study in whether things are transitory or not? Kroger should be a huge beneficiary if we're going to keep seeing price pressures, right? If so, they're down, that tells me maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a vote for transitory. Well, so so it's, 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 it's interesting you brought that up because I heard your open. Your, your opening monologue. For Kroger, you got to figure that rising commodity costs do help pressure margins as well for a company like Kroger. So they did mention that in their latest quarter, margins did compress from the same year ago period. So if, yes, inflation is part of the story, if there's pricing, at least power, maybe they can do it. But for consumer staples, it'll be kind of tough. So we'll see whether or not those yeah. margin pressures continue for a grocery store chain like Kroger. If their profit margins are down in this environment, maybe that's all the market needs to know. It's a great point. Dom, thank you very, very much. 
dumped you. Let's move along to my next guest who says there are too many cross currents feeding market volatility right now. So instead of bargain hunting, he says you should take the passive aggressive approach. Joining me to explain is Bryce Doty. He is senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates. Bryce, welcome to you. What do you mean by passive aggressive? Well, in this context, with all these cross currents, a uh, passive aggressive approach means that you, you take some of your money and you and you do keep it in the, the passive uh, indices like the S and P five hundred, but you cut back. You know, you take some of that, you put it in uh, cash, keep some powder dry. We like uh, our conservative bond strategy vault uh, for for that piece, and then away from that, you start thinking outside the box. You get a little more aggressive, and and you try to uh, catch secular themes, things that diversify away from the S&P 500. Because uh, just, just to cover some of the cross currents that you mentioned, mm -hmm. you, have, you have simultaneous uh, cost pressures that are, are impacting margins, just like you, you discussed. Some firms are able to pass those costs on just great. And they're even going to be above and beyond. They're cutting out all discounts, things like that. They're actually getting margin expansion. And then you've got others where their margin is just getting crushed by inflation. So every time there's an inflation report, it's affecting different companies differently. You're like, okay, this helps this company's earnings. It crushes this person's. So it's really tough to know what to do. Uh, one thing that's safe to do in that environment are tips. They, they continue to, to outperform traditional treasuries. It doesn't seem to matter if treasury yields are going up or down. Tips can sometimes have a better day than a traditional treasury. Interesting. It seems biz bizarre to me to see what happened yesterday, that after a strong 30-year treasury, 30-year yields dropped sharply, but tip yields dropped even sharper. How can that happen? Usually, if there's a, a big demand for inflation mm -hmm. protection, you see yields rising. And yet, I think it's just a matter of too many, too much cash being just shoved into the system between the, the stimulus payments and the Fed and the ECB, you know, that's forcing everything up regardless. But there, there are some serious inflation pressures out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point, the idea of this concept of too much cash is showing up in a lot of different corners of the market in really interesting ways. Let's go through some of the other places. So, again, just to reiterate this passive-aggressive mm -hmm. idea is to kind of, you know, stay with the markets, broadly speaking, but then have these uh, areas that are not as, uh, not as correlated with the markets normally. So that's where tips would come in for you. Um, you also like the silver ETFs. You think this could be a crypto hedge, which I think is really interesting. You like hack the cybersecurity ETF vault. Tell me about even private debt and real estate, obviously a little bit harder uh, for us to show a ticker there. But tell me about the ones, the ETFs you do like. Right. So cybersecurity is a big theme right now. You're seeing uh, money set aside in the infrastructure bill just for that purpose, to protect you know, critical uh, water systems, electrical grids, and things like that from cybersecurity. So that's just that's just going to be a theme. Regardless of what you think about earnings and things like that, there's going to be some really juicy government contracts going there. So hack is the is the way to go there. H A A C. That's the play. Uh, the other way, uh, other thoughts. You know, I pay is another good ETF. It's it's not like electronic payments are going to be going away. Um, the uh, the other themes that are out there on a secular basis. Again, this is just a, a trend that's going to persist over the long term. You've got the cannabis play. It's MJ. Uh, I don't don't often recommend that, but that's <laughs> that's a way to diversify away from the S&P 500. And then you mentioned uh, uh, silver that I like because th I understand the thrill of cryptocurrency, you know, and, and I own some myself. OK, but it's 
it's it's it's a volatile, dangerous play. And and I understand that the government's kind of driving investors towards that by printing so much money. There's uh, too much spending going on, and and I get the whole story. But it, it might be nice to like like smooth out the ride a little bit and and go with uh, precious metals. So SILJ is a silver play that's uh, a little more stable and a little more you know a little more rational. I think that people should consider if they're looking at just crypto. You know, don't don't just do crypto <laughs> or uranium. So, that's the new silver. Uh, the way the markets yeah. are behaving this week. But I take your point, Bryce. Yeah. Thank you very much for kind of putting this all together for us as an investment strategy. We really appreciate it today. Bryce Doty is with SIT Investment Associates. We want to move on to the latest in the Apple Epic Games saga. Just been breaking over the past few hours. We have a statement now from the CEO of Epic. Doesn't sound too happy. Julia Borson has the story. Julia? That's that's right, Kelly. Epic CEO Tim Sweeney weighing in on the judge's ruling in its lawsuit against Apple over App Store fees. Sweeney's saying that the judge's ruling that Apple must allow other forms of in-app purchases does not go far enough. Sweeney tweeting, quote, today's ruling is not a win for developers or for consumers. Epic is fighting for fair competition among in-app payment methods and app stores for a billion consumers saying that Fortnite will return to the iOS app store when and where Epic can offer in-app payment in fair competition with Apple in in-app payment, passing along the savings to consumers. Now, I do want to note here that analyst Barton Crockett tells us that this ruling is helpful for companies, including Netflix, Spotify, and others who have been working to avoid app store fees. Take a look at some of these stocks on the move today. Netflix shares up about 1%. Spotify shares up some 3%. Bumble up 6%. And Match Group up nearly 7%. We're also seeing the impact on other game companies. Roblox, those shares up about 4%. And then Zynga shares up over 9%. Now, we are awaiting a comment from some of these companies. Match and Spotify, among others, have come out in support of Epic's case. So we'll see if they agree with Sweeney or not. Kelly? All right, Julia, stick around. Let's bring in John Fort for more reaction here. John, so we're seeing shares of Match continue to move to the upside. What more do you expect as people let this sink in? Do you think that Apple investors are going to shrug it off as a little bit status quo, or are they going to start to have to think about what a big deal this really could be? Well, I think Apple investors, Kelly, should in a way shrug this off because the core of Apple's business model, where it gets its revenues and profits and what keeps that engine going is not affected directly by this. So we're going to get that stuff next week when Apple, we expect, unveils the next version of the iPhone, Apple Watch, uh, etc. Apple's really about that vertical integration between that hardware, software, and services that keeps people loyal. And because of that, they'll probably be able to figure out other mechanisms to get paid on the services end. And that goes to another piece of this, Kelly, is the court said that Apple's not a monopoly. It said that they're competing unfairly according to California state law. And there's an issue there that's now going to allow developers to use other payment systems and communicate more directly with customers. And that's a big deal for a lot of developers, especially gaming companies, but it's not a huge negative impact for Apple business-wise. Julia, what about this idea that Epic is going to keep evaluating whether it wants to be in, in the App Store you know, until they think they're on more of a level playing field? Do you think they have enough heft to undermine the App Store and to continue to press this in other jurisdictions, or will they ultimately have to get with the program or risk losing their customer base? 
Well, well, look, Kelly, I mean, I think one thing's for sure is that this battle is far from over. Sweeney indicating that they're going to appeal this. There are parts of this that we can expect Apple to likely appeal. This is a battle that's going to be dragging out for a very long time. I mean, you know, we've seen, you know, Epic and Tim Sweeney, you know, function without the App Store for a while. But I think the question is big picture. You know, does Epic need to be on Apple devices? The answer is yes. Does Epic want to make a point here and stake a claim here? And the answer is yes as well. So I think that this battle is going to continue. John is right in that this is not a meaningful piece or you know an impactful piece of Apple's revenue, but it is a key piece of their business and the way they think about their business. Apple has made concessions. They were moving in this direction. This is a step further than the concessions Apple has made. But I think this is going to be a, a lot of negotiation uh, over the long term. And this this battle is far from over, guys. John, you do think this could be of an area where we should watch stocks like PayPal. I think Stripe's still private, but yeah. Shopify, other platform, payment platforms that could now have a big new client base. Absolutely. And also um, uh, Unity uh, software, which, which makes some uh, software platform-wise for gaming, AppLovin' as well. This opens up enormous possibilities in the ecosystem for uh, gaming, for digital payments, for the sorts of companies that would be able to say to developers, hey, you need an alternate payment system that perhaps is going to give you better terms than Apple would, but you need it to work across not only your app but also your website and other platforms come to us. And those are the sorts of companies that could do that once all of the specifics of this get played out. And I, I mentioned Stripe because this is what Stripe is so, so good at. This could be a huge public company right now, but they've remained private. They've got a big opportunity here, Kelly. Yeah, well said. Guys, thank you both. Our John Fort and Julia Borson with the very latest. And speaking of payments, we've got Lisa Ellis on deck. So let's talk to her about what this could all mean for payment stocks. Will developers be shifting transactions to platforms like PayPal, Square, Stripe, and others? Lisa is a, pa a partner and senior payments analyst at Moffitt Nathanson Research. Um, I know it's early to ask you, Lisa. It's just been a couple of hours. But is John right here about the opportunity? And is, Stripe, uh, is Stripe's IPO now a, a sure thing? I mean, they're, they could have done this a long time ago. Well, we certainly hope Stripe's IPO is coming soon. That's certainly, you know, been one of the um, hotly anticipated IPOs and payments now for a couple of years. And I guess the latest uh, view is perhaps early in 22 that might be coming. But no question this ruling, while um, understandably it's kind of viewed as maybe baby steps by Epic, is a positive step for the payments ecosystem who have for a long time been frustrated by um, the uh, the closed aspect of Apple's ecosystem, um, particularly positive for PayPal. That's the player that has been effectively blocked out in many ways of the Apple ecosystem because Apple restricts access to other payment methods over their platform. Um, so this is uh, most directly a boost for Apple, for PayPal, who will be hoping to kind of, you know, draft behind this ruling um, and hopefully have it, you know, kind of transition into even more steps uh, where Apple needs to open up aspects of their platform to third-party payment providers. And let's take a step back here because for the payment space, you have this brilliant note from a several, you know, just pointing out with the uh, acquisition that we saw between PayPal, or I'm sorry, Square and Afterpay three weeks ago that you expected to see a huge amount of deal making in the payment space. Of course, then we saw Amazon go after uh, the big firm, the big buy now, pay later candidate. So what consolidation do you now foresee? And has this really all of a sudden now uh, set off what's likely to be a race to consolidate? The 
We think so. Um, I mean, it, it's still a bit of a domino effect where things went quiet just as they did across many industries during the pandemic. And then now coming out of it, all these players um, with all of the dramatic shift into digital payments that was triggered by the pandemic are moving quickly to strategically position themselves. So um, Square's acquisition of Afterpay is one big step. We do expect to see further consolidation amongst the buy now, pay later players. The big ones, of course, being Affirm, Klarna, Sezzle, et cetera, who are better off as part of larger platforms than trying to go it alone. Um, but then we think that we could also see that triggering consolidation in other areas. For example, potentially some of the hot mobile um, alternatives to Square. So this would be players like Toast or Upserve. There's a number of smaller, um, Shift4 Payments is another one. There's a number of smaller players in the uh, mobile point of sale system, uh, those integrated, you know, cute white uh, point of sale systems that we think could also be targets of consolidation. And final question, where does this all leave the, the sort of the current giants, the visas, the MasterCards? Uh, so far, so good. I mean, uh, you know, they're like Switzerland, right? As long as ultimately on the back end, everything is funded with a card, which by and large it is, and more cash keeps getting displaced. Visa, MasterCard, American Express continue to be those back end rails, the back end plumbing that really win. Um, but that said, with this amount of innovation and disruption, we are watching, of course, very closely just whether or not there will be some, you know, so far so good, but whether or not there'll be some commoditization issues or potentially some substitute ways of paying that could mm -hmm. creep into the system. In, you know, any period of disruption like this, you're gonna be watching very closely, but so far so good for Visa and MasterCard. And keep in mind, they continue to be two of our top picks because they are huge recovery plays on the still pending recovery in uh, travel and yeah. cross international travel. Cross-border payments. I, I hear a, a creeping note of caution in your voice there, though, Lisa. I'm not, you know, I, I can't dismiss it. Uh, it's great to have you here today. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis of Moffitt Nathanson. Coming up, Bank of America is shaking up its C-suite. We've got the details and whether a successor for Brian Moynihan is in place. We'll dig into that next. And is transitory or the new normal? With August producer price index posting the biggest year-on-year -year gain on record, we will debate that straight ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Bank of America is shaking up its C-suite. Wilfred Frost has the details for us. Wilf? Hey, Kelly. So following the news last month that two longstanding deputies to Brian Moynihan at Bank of America, Ann Finnegan and Tom Montag, were retiring, the company today announced a slew of promotions. Also, by the way, two other significant retirements, Andreas Smith and David Leach. 
The first big takeaway from today's announcement, Brian Moynihan is going nowhere. A source close to him suggests to me that at 61, he's keen to remain in place for most of the rest of this decade. And it's worth noting that nobody received the firm-wide COO title that the departing Tom Montag had. That said, the standout name in the promotions is Dean Athanasia, who now adds president of global commercial banking to his president of consumer and small business titles. This is a significant additional role for him. Also actually a significant change in structure for Bank of America, more akin to others like JP Morgan Chase. Athanasia is 55. The other big set of promotions really, Alistair Borthwick, who uh, did have that commercial banking title himself beforehand. He's the new CFO, meaning he'll now have exposure to investors rather than predominantly clients uh, in, in the years to come. If anything were to happen to Moynihan imminently, it would probably be one of those two that would take over, possibly also the outgoing CFO, Paul D'Onofrio, who's 61 and is becoming the vice chair. But if Moynihan does indeed complete uh, this full decade uh, as chairman and CEO, a slew of other names will have time to prove themselves uh, and enter the running as well, Kelly. Moynihan is establishing nine new direct reports uh, as a result of today's announcement, taking his total number of direct reports to 17, Thus, hard to really pick out any individuals from such a long list uh, for the long-term potential candidates. By the way, of those 17 direct reports, five are women, two are black, two are Asian, and of the eight individual business lines, three are led by women, Kelly. All right, Wilf, thank you very, very much. We appreciate it. Wilfred Frosted, the latest on B of A. Still ahead, the buyback battle in Washington is heating up with a new tax proposal that has big implications for Wall Street and for all of the stocks in your portfolio. We're going to break it down in just a moment. 
We'll speak with co-founder Jimmy Dunn about that day and how those attacks have inspired victims' children to follow in their footsteps. That's next right here on The Exchange. Back, everybody, more than 3,000 children lost a parent in the September 11th attacks. To mark the 20th anniversary of that day, we've been telling the stories of some of those families. Bertha Coombs is in Lower Manhattan with a look at how the attacks impacted the career paths of two victims' sons. Bertha? That's right, Kelly. You know, Cantor Fitzgerald in the North Tower lost more than 650 souls 20 years ago on September 11th. For the children of those people, it is a very special legacy. And for two of them, their career choices have very much been inspired by the loss of their fathers. Raymond Wang's first posting with the Port Authority Police was the 9-11 memorial. At first, um, I, I really didn't want to work down here, but um, you know, as I got here, just uh, you know, again, it's like it's like an honor to be able to work the site. They didn't know his father, Wei Bin, was one of 658 Cantor Fitzgerald workers killed in the attack. This is where the family marks the anniversary. I've been uh, honored to be able to read the names four times. And, and our, our father, Wei Bin Wang, we love you. He thought about following in his dad's footsteps, but what stayed with him about that time how his town's police officers supported his family. I remember they, you know, had lined my street with cars, you know, when, when they finally, you know, delivered the news. And, you know, I think that's kind of just kind of um, stuck with me, you know, that, that brotherhood and that, that unity. Austin Vicosa's dad, Alfred, worked in IT at Cantor Fitzgerald. What's inspired him all these years? CEO Howard Lutnick's commitment to support Cantor families. Brian Malone, his mentor from the 9-11 group Tuesday's Children, who also works in finance. As soon as I got out of school, so I was thinking that I wanted to work for an investment bank. He didn't plan to work at Cantor, but has now been there five years. Just to see, you know, my face, my picture, and then and then Cantor Fitzgerald on my D card, and I had, you know, associated that with my dad for so long. It was, it was, it was felt like a full circle moment for sure, um, and kind of. For me, it was you know, about building my own chapter here at Canner while also fulfilling his legacy. Saturday, Raymond and Austin will be back at Ground Zero. As long as you know there is a memorial service on the day and the reading of the names, I think it's kind of the way we've grown accustomed, grown accustomed to, to, to grieving on the day. Um, so I, I think we'll probably continue to do that. I'm actually going to be uh, working at the site again. Um, and I think it'll be, um, I think it's gonna be a tough time, but um, you know. It's gonna be tough for all of them. Interestingly, Kelly, you know, they're young men and, and both of them noted that there's a whole generation now that didn't experience the 9-11 attack. And that's part of the reason they speak out to make sure that those people know that this is still very much a living part of our history. 
Yeah, for sure. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs downtown today. Now, the idea of following in your parents' footsteps happened at a number of places on Wall Street after 9-11. One of those was Sandler O'Neill. The firm occupied the 104th floor of the World Trade Center, and they lost 66 employees that day, nearly half the workforce. 20 years later, the company employs a number of people who lost their parents that day. Joining me now with how these attacks change Wall Street is Jimmy Dunn. He's the co-founder of Sandler O'Neill and the vice chairman and senior managing principal at Piper Sandler. Jimmy, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good, Kelly. How are you? Nice to be with you today. It's great to have you. And let's rem remind people that a couple days after 9-11, people were wondering if this firm could survive. How'd you make it? Well, uh, it was a very difficult time for everyone. But the truth is, we came together as a country and we had people from everywhere trying to help us, Kelly. And, and the reason we were successful was our clients stayed with us. We had friends, we had competitors. Everybody that came together made a real effort that we that we stayed in business. So we're very grateful every day. Let's talk about the reporting that Bertha just did about the next generation, the children who lost parents in 9-11 and how they've followed in their parents' footsteps. You guys have that firsthand going on, don't you? Yeah, well, we you know, obviously each firm has a particular commitment to their to the children of the people of the mothers and fathers that they lost. Uh, we've spent a lot of time little more focused in getting them into colleges, uh, honestly. We, I think I know every head of admission of almost every college in the country at this point in time. But, uh, but in addition to that, if they have an interest in Wall Street or if they have an interest in finance, we'll do everything we can to help them, or for that matter, any other field. It's, it's important for them to pursue what they want to pursue. Uh, we try to do internships if that's something that they find useful. And we have a couple, we have a couple Evan Lozier and uh, and, and Maggie that are working with us now that, that their dads worked, Maggie Smith had worked with us, uh, their dads worked with us. But it's not something that we pursue vigorously, but if we can be helpful and if it's a course that they want to follow, we're happy to try to help. Do they typically have a determination to follow in these footsteps? Do they feel conflicted about it? I mean, obviously listening to the people Bertha spoke with, it's very difficult uh, for them to even be near 9-11. So again, I'm just curious what that must be like for them to, you know, to sort of be in that presence. Well, not, not a surprise. Each, each child is unique and different and they have different uh, things that they want to pursue. Uh, the reality is I would never encourage them to pursue something because their dad or mother did. They've got to find their own way. They've got to find their own passions. And they've got to try things. And if doing an internship with us exposes them to something, they'll either figure at the end of the summer, they'll either like it more or like it less. And both of those things are okay. Sometimes finding out that what you don't want to do is as important as finding out what you do want to do. So, it, you know, it's probably the same dynamic with most all college kids. You know, they're trying to figure out what it is that they're trying to pursue and what, what really, you know, what, what passion, you know, they're young. That first five years, you've got to really figure out things that you like or don't like. So we just try to be as helpful as we can. You mentioned that you've placed a number of them uh, with scholarships into college, and you think that that'll start to wind down around 2024, maybe 2025. Where will your work lead then, or is that the completion of a lot of these efforts? Well, uh, you know, Andy Armstrong and Tim Neer and, and, and uh, Chuck Whitmer helped coordinated this foundation. We obviously at Sandler gave to it along with many, many other people. And the whole purpose of that foundation was to provide complete education for every child of someone that 
what's their mother or father at uh, at Sandler. And that work will be pretty much done in a few years. We have our last last uh, child in school now. And when he graduates, it'll be done. And then the foundation will probably give the money, whatever balance, if there is any balance left, to some kind of worthy cause, whatever they deem appropriate. But it was designed specifically for that purpose to educate all the kids. Once that's done, it will it will be done. Well, we all applaud the work that you've done, and we thank you so much for all the dedication you've given to it. Jimmy, thanks for joining us today. Kelly, my thoughts are with everybody on this tough weekend. Jimmy Dunn with Sandler O'Neill. And tonight, a very special edition of the News with Shepard Smith. Shep will be broadcasting live from the 9-11 Memorial with a retrospective on the day and the 20 years since. That'll be at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And as we mark the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we've been hearing stories from traders who were at the New York Stock Exchange that day. As we head to break, here's Meridian Equity Partners, Jonathan Corpina. The one memory from that day that stands out to me was I was working down here on the floor. There's not a lot of windows on the exchange here. We were getting calls from the outside of the building telling us what was going on. I walked to the front door at 11 Wall to look out the window, and all I could see was debris, smoke, parts of buildings coming down. It was, it was something that I've walked through those doors thousands of times, but looking out those doors, I've never seen anything like that before. Welcome back, everybody. The costs keep climbing. The producer price index for August up more than 8% from the previous year, its highest reading in at least a decade. So with yet another data point coming in higher than expected, is inflation really transitory? Joining me to discuss, maybe even to debate, Peter Bookvar is chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, and Gina Sanchez is CEO at Chantico Global and chief market strategist at Lido Advisors. Welcome to you both. Peter, I know you've been warning for some time that cost pressures will remain elevated. How elevated and for how long do you think? Well, as we progress into 2022, they'll get less elevated. But the question is, is do we go back to where we were pre-COVID with consumer prices printing 1% to 2%? Or do we have, for a period of time, a higher plateau? Is it 3 to 4% instead? And I'll argue that 3 to 4%, while it's slower than the rate we're seeing now, is a big problem. Because... $15 trillion of negative yielding bonds is not a good setup with 3% inflation. A 1.3% 10-year yield is not a good setup with 3% inflation. An S&P 500 trading at 22 times earnings is not a good setup with 3% inflation. So basically, Peter, you think that there's no... I, I'm almost starting to wonder if we had 3% inflation, if people would still hold treasuries. I, I don't even know if the yield has any... I know that flies in the face of, you know, how finance is supposed to work, but it seems obvious we're going to be at higher than 1.3%, but maybe not over a 10-year time frame. Well, I, I want to believe that there is some market left, free market left in the treasury market, and that if the markets were disabused of the thought that this is just transitory, and if we were well into 2022 and inflation rates are still elevated, which I think will be the case, then the long end of the yield curve should adjust. But then the question is, is how much is the Fed going to fight that? And how much are they going to sort of distort the market and not let the market reflect where they think uh, things should be priced? Right. So, Gina, I'll, let me turn to you because I know that I, I don't want to say you're in the transitory camp, but I think you're less concerned about 
sort of persistent cost pressure, cost pressures as we head into 22 and beyond. So, and again, you're picking investments based on this view. So tell me about this. How much does it differ with what Peter's describing, if it does? So one of the things, when I talk to people about inflation and I ask them, what do you think the Fed means when they say transitory? Most people think that that, that means that price levels go up and then they come back down. Something like what happened in 2008 with oil prices and again in 2011 with oil prices where prices went up hit big numbers, 140, 110, and then came back down to low numbers. But actually, there's two other versions of transitory inflation that still actually meet with what's just been described. The first is that you have a one-time price shock, and then prices remain elevated, but don't really change much after that. So the change goes down, but your price levels are permanently higher. The second is that prices go up, and then they continue to go up just more slowly. Both of those things actually technically qualify as transitory inflation. And I would make arguments that wages, for example, right now we've actually had twice the level of retirements in the, during the pandemic that happened in 2019. A lot of people have retired. And so you have a lot of, of companies looking to replace those. There was a lot of, of sort of you know wage compression that had been locked up in the wages that they were paying. And now they're having to go out into the open market and all of those wages are adjusting upwards. But I would argue that that's probably not going to continue for many years. I would argue that that's probably a one to two year adjustment. Wages then start into their wage adjustment, their, their wage compression cycle, and we have low inflation again. So, Gina, it's obvious, you know, Peter's not that interested in holding a 10 year treasury at these yields. Would you? Well, who loves treasuries at these yields? They're terrible. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is that, um, you know, that, that you have, quite frankly, and everything is too expensive market. Everything is too expensive, Kelly. Uh, it, the equities at these levels are too expensive. Right. And so to some degree, some some inflation is actually quite healthy, especially if it comes in through wages, because Higher wages portend higher consumption. Higher consumption portends higher growth. All of those things are actually good for equities from a fundamental basis because the fundamentals haven't been there for a very long time. All we've had are margins, yeah. probably for the past decade. Uh, and so I think we need some, some inflation in order to get back to good fundamentals. Peter, it's almost like what Gina's describing is that the whole society has a high P.E. ratio, but she thinks the E is going to come up because, you know, the wage is going to kick in and it's going to that's how, you know, things might look out of whack right now, but not if people have you know more disposable income. But then I guess the point would be they can afford higher costs, which would then kind of make your point about the persistence of cost pressures. Well, it is a good thing from an employee standpoint that we are seeing higher wages now. The problem year to date, at least, is that inflation is running faster than wage growth. So we're actually seeing a decline in real wages. So, yes, hopefully we'll continue to see that wage increase. But if inflation runs faster, then that's not a good thing. I am not in the camp that a little bit of inflation or, uh, or even more than that is a good thing because that reduces real wages. I want to see very low inflation and stronger wage growth that's driven by productivity. I don't want to see wage growth because there's a lack of workers or, or for other reasons. I want to see higher wages because there's strong productivity. That is healthy wage growth. 
not because there's a dearth of workers. All right. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you. Peter Bookvar, Gina Sanchez on the PPI report, among many inflation readings that are hotly contested these days. Up next, Wall Street has loved modular sofa maker Lovesack over the past year, sending shares up by more than 140%, but it's a different story in the near term. The stock is down about 20% as supply chain issues have pressured profits. We'll talk to the CEO about their big earnings beat and how the company is handling all of these headwinds next. Welcome back. Furniture manufacturer Lovesack up about 10% today after knocking results out of the park yesterday. This was our mystery chart, by the way, and kudos to those who guessed it correctly. Uh, they reported earnings of 52 cents a share compared with an expected 8 cent loss. But with container costs increasing and global supply chains still reeling from the pandemic and extreme weather, another layer of disruption. What does the rest of the year look like? Joining me now is Lovesack founder and CEO Sean Nelson. Sean, it's good to have you. I don't know if you just heard this whole debate we were having about whether inflation is transitory. What does your company think? Uh, I don't believe so. I believe that, uh, you know, the whole container pricing situation and the global supply chain situation is somewhat transitory, although it'll probably never be back to the levels it was. But I think uh, broader inflation is here to stay. So does that mean, you know, your stuff isn't cheap? Does that mean you just increase price a little? And, you know, from what I can tell, consumers have a lot of cash and these items are hot commodities and they're probably willing to pay those prices. Is that how it's working? Yeah, that's exactly right. We uh, we haven't really taken price yet. We've reduced our discounting cadence quite a bit, um, and it's been very successful for us taking you know higher margins at least at the register, giving them back to the shipping companies on the with the freight inbound. But um, overall, Lovesack's been weathered this very well. We protect our gross margins. We've we've uh, driven crazy growth, as you've seen, and uh, we're um, well poised to be able to take price as needed. I can't imagine if you guys weren't in such a hot area right now. You know, the fact that home furnishings is probably one of the most in-demand categories must help. But tell me about Costco. Uh, how much did a partnership there benefit sales? Is that sustainable? Yeah, the Costco partnership began as a shop-in-shop, pop-up shop situation where we would rotate 10-day stints in their roadshow program and doing that live. And over time, we transitioned to all virtual doing only online pop-ups with Costco. And they've been hugely successful, even rivaling all the work we used to do in-store with them. And so that partnership has been pivotal, as well as now the Best Buy partnership we have, where we are doing proper permanent shop-in shops inside of Best Buy locations, where you can touch, feel, sit on our couches and uh, experience them in person. So for investors who might be looking at this going, OK, they did much better than expected, but do I really want to jump in right now? You know, it's been a hot stock. What's the next kind of couple of quarters going to bring? What you know, how do things look from your point of view? Well, we are most excited about a long anticipated major product launch we have coming this fall. We're really just uh, weeks away now from announcing what it is. We've had investors on the edge of their seat for a long time, those who track us closely. We <laughs> haven't really publicized it with consumers. And it's really cool, very proud of it. It's been years in the making and it will dovetail so well into our overall strategy, leverage our showroom footprint. So that's a big one. And then, you know, given our growth trajectory, given what's happening now, we feel very confident about our future. So you started with bean bags. Now you're doing kind of the modular furniture. I'm racking my brain to think what this could mean. One more logistical question, though, which might tie into this product launch. 
Tell me about the supply chains going through China or how that country versus Vietnam and some of the other Asian manufacturing countries are helping or hindering your ability to get product cheaply and on time right now. Yeah, luckily, we, for the last couple of years, have diversified our supply chains drastically. So we're now manufacturing redundant product, the same products. And that's what's unique about sectionals, right? With just a bunch of seats and a bunch of sides, you can build 10,000 different couch configurations, cover them however you like. So those same SKUs are coming to us from China, from Vietnam, from Malaysia, Indonesia. And as things get bungled up at this port or that port or COVID flares here or there, we're able to move our, our manufacturing you know, outflows between each of them. And, and we've never been out of stock. We straight through COVID, all through this, you can order a couch today and get it in days delivered to your door FedEx. That's what's so unique about our offering. That's the reason we've been doing okay. Absolutely. Well, and as a Stanford homer with a lot of family there, I'm glad to see a company there doing well. Thanks for joining Thank me, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate John it. Nelson of LoveSack. Still ahead, Senate Democrats proposing a new tax to fund spending, and the authors say it'll get Wall Street to pay its fair share. We have those details right after this. Welcome back to Senate. Democrats are proposing a new tax outside of President Biden's original spending plan, and it could have big implications for markets. Elon Moy is here with that story. Elon? Well, Kelly, Senate Democrats today unveiled two new options to pay for President Biden's $3.5 trillion package of spending and tax cuts. Now, the first is a 2% excise tax on stock buybacks. That bill is sponsored by Senator Sherrod Brown and Ron Wyden, the chairman of the Banking and Finance Committees. I'm told that they expect it will raise roughly $100 billion over a decade. The senators say the goal is to prevent abuse and reduce tax avoidance. And the 2% tax would not apply if the buyback is used to fund an employee pension plan or stock ownership plan. Now, the second focuses on closing loopholes for pass-through entities like partnerships. This proposal is from Senator Wyden, who says the IRS has a tough time enforcing the complicated rules surrounding them. Now, Wyden wants to prevent partnerships from shifting their income and therefore tax liability. And he says these adjustments could raise $172 billion over a decade without technically increasing taxes. Now, neither of these ideas was part of President Biden's framework for the spending package, but Senate Democrats have been considering a much broader list of options like these in order to raise revenue. Kelly, the deadline for Democrats to reach an agreement on the spending and tax package is September 15th, but some lawmakers are already warning that that timing could slip. Back to you. I think a lot of people in markets, Elon, don't know whether to take this as a real threat or not. What are you hearing in terms of the likelihood we could see something like the buyback tax passed? Yeah, I think they're definitely going to try to get something passed. Whether or not these options actually make it into the package depends on where or not some of the other big revenue raisers like the corporate tax rate end up falling. If the corporate tax rate maybe isn't as high as that 28 percent that President Biden uh, originally supported because of moderates like Joe Manchin, then maybe they have to use some of these other proposals to make up that revenue. Oh, very interesting. That's a good framework, I think, for watching these negotiations play out. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington today. That does it for the exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, 
but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.